Welcome to the Living Hope College Ministry Podcast. My name is Hunter Sewell, and I'm the college pastor at Living Hope Baptist Church. Our college ministry meets at 8.30 on Wednesday nights, and we'd love to have you join us if you don't have a church home. We're so glad that you've joined us today to listen in as we start our series in the book of Ruth. Today we're going to be talking about Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to see the goodness and the sovereignty of God on display. We hope that this message is encouraging to you and that it serves you well. Guys, I have to tell you, I've done a very bad thing. I, uh, I tried to some, for some reason to plan to preach the entire first chapter of Ruth in uh, 30 minutes. So uh, I don't know how I was going to do that. I wrote 15 pages of notes. Um, I didn't bring 15 pages with me to save you guys uh, some time so you could go home and sleep tonight because I know you got school and stuff tomorrow. Uh, but all that to say is I'm really excited uh, to study Ruth, the book of Ruth. Ruth is one of the best short stories in all of short story history. Uh, I love the story of Ruth, and it's not just a story about Ruth. It's not just a story about a girl who's swept off of her feet by a, a nice guy. It's not, it's not just a story about romance. It's not even just a story about Naomi or even Boaz being a kinsman redeemer. This story is God's story. It's our story. It's a love story. It's a story that tells us about the character of the God of the Bible and tells us about the purposes of the God of the Bible, that the God of the Bible is a God of redeeming love. That's why we named this series Redeeming Love, because this this book tells us about the God who redeems. He's a God who takes broken and sinful people, captives to sin. He redeems them for his glory. I love what the prophet Isaiah wrote about God in Isaiah 47, verse four. He says, our redeemer, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Savat is his name. He's the Holy One of Israel. And so this, this idea of, of redemption is a theme that's very important throughout really the, the history of the Bible, throughout the, the, the whole storyline of the Bible. Uh, and, and in order for us to understand the, the concept of redemption fully, we gotta first understand uh, that what redemption is, why redemption's necessary. Redemption's necessary only in the sense that someone has to be trapped or enslaved to be redeemed. To be redeemed is to be taken out of captivity, to, taken, to be taken out of slavery to something and set free to something else. And so for redemption to happen, we have to understand that someone has to be trapped in something before they can be redeemed. And biblically speaking, all of us are entrapped to something. We're all enslaved to something. And sin is that something. We're enslaved to our sin. We're born in sin. From Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, they subjected all of humanity under the curse of sin. We are all born slaves to sin. Nobody is exempt from slavery to sin, and none of us are able to escape the, the power of sin on our own. And so for us to understand this idea that the God of the Bible is a God of redemption, we have to first understand that sin is not just an action that we take. It's not just when we disobey God, but it's a tyrannical master that, that, that we are enslaved to. Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 34, he says that everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. And the Bible's pretty explicit about the consequences of sin. In Romans 6, 23, we see that the wages of sin are death, spiritual separation from a God who's made us, a God who loves us, a God who desires a relationship with us, but we can't because of our sin. So we will, in our sin, if left dead in our trespasses and sins, we'll spend an eternity apart from God in a place called hell. So we need redemption. We need, we need a redeemer. And this is the good news of the gospel, isn't it? 
that Jesus is our redeemer, that he is the one who has paid it all and all to him we owe. I love what Jesus said about himself in Luke chapter four, verse 18. He said that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Did you catch that? He said he came to to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin. He became sin and he bore the consequence of sin so that you and I, by grace through faith in Christ alone, we might be liberated from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Jesus is our redeemer, the blood of Christ the lamb. It's our means of redemption. That's why the apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, 7 writes that in Christ Jesus, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So as we step into this series in Ruth, it's important that we know that the story of Ruth is not just about Boaz marrying Ruth, redeeming her, and then living happily ever after. That the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth, the entirety of the book is a story of God. It's a story of a God who redeems a people for his own possession to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what the book of Ruth's about. So as we talk for the next couple of weeks about the character and the, and the purposes of our glorious God, don't miss that that's what the book of Ruth is about. It's about God. The whole Bible is about God. And so I wanna pray for us before we start studying the text. Tonight's gonna be a little different. Typically, I usually give you guys some points and things to write down, but since this is written in such a narrative form, I, I wanna walk through the narrative and we'll make a couple of points of application as we go. Uh, but at the end, I, I wanna talk just briefly about the character of God that we see, uh, particularly in Naomi's response. And so uh, would you join me in prayer as, as we ask the Lord to bless this time we study his word? Father, we come before you so humbled to know that you have paid it all. That Christ Jesus, you have come, you have given your life, that your blood might be the means for our redemption. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come and done what we could never do and that you have rescued us. So God, we now pray that as we study your word, that you would give us a heart that's willing to submit to the truths that we find in it. And God, you are the one who is worthy of our lives, worthy of our praise. So Father, give us eyes to see as we study this text. Give us hearts that are receptive. Lord, give us hands and feet and mouths and minds that are obedient. Help us to submit to you and to delight in doing so. Again, God, you are a redeeming God, a God of redeeming love. Help us to experience that tonight as we study your word in this beautiful story of Ruth. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, so again, if you haven't flipped to Ruth chapter one, I wanna invite you to go ahead and flip there. Uh, and and Every good story has a setting, right? And the story of Ruth is no different. The story of Ruth takes place, verse one, it tells us in the, in the days when the judges ruled. And so here's kind of our timeline of history. We're somewhere around 1000 BC. The judges have ruled from 1300 BC to about 1000 BC, so somewhere in there. And if you don't know, if you're not familiar with the period of the judges, Judges is the book that comes right before Ruth. And Judges was a very, very dark period in Israel's history. Just before the period of the judges, uh, Joshua and the Israelites had conquered the promised land. God had promised his people that he would give them a land, the land of Canaan. It was the promised land. And so Joshua and the army of Israel, with God's help, they went through and they conquered the land of Canaan. And God was faithful to keep his promise. And all the Israelites had to do was to obey God. God told them to drive out the Canaanites. So that, and, and he told them to drive out the Canaanites, one, but secondly, don't intermarry. 
don't intermarry with the people of Canaan. Don't intermarry with the peoples that you're driving out. And he tells them, if you do marry them, you're gonna end up worshiping their gods and you won't worship me. All they had to do to remain in the land, to continue to receive God's blessings, was to drive out the Canaanites and not intermarry them. And guess what they did? They didn't do it. They didn't do either of them. They didn't drive out the Canaanites and they didn't not intermarry. They intermarried and they developed this kind of uh, what you might call like a syncretistic uh, religion where they took worship of the God of the Bible and they took worship of Baal and Asherah and Asherim and several other gods and they kind of blended it all together. They became an idolatrous people. And so in the book of Judges, we see this repeated cycle uh, that takes place over and over as God is disciplining his people. So people, they aren't faithful to God. And so God raises up a, a nation to oppress them and to cause them to, to repent. So they cry out to God. He delivers them with a judge, a, a kind of a military figure. So they have this judge, and as long as this judge lives, they have peace. And they walk with the Lord, but as soon as this judge dies, peace ends, and pretty quickly they're right back into their idolatrous habits, and they find themselves again in oppression. You have this cycle over and over and over in the period of Judges. And this cycle is a downward spiral. So it starts okay at the top, and the guys that you see delivering the people of Israel are okay, but the further along you get in the book of Judges, the more and more wicked the people of Israel really are. And this period of Judges can be summed up in the last verse of the book of Judges. It says that in those days, there was no king in Israel, but everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so here in Israel, we see just complete, total moral and spiritual corruption. These people were not worshiping the one true God, but God wasn't done with his people. He's never done with his people. He had a plan for them. No matter how far they wandered, the God of the Bible is a God of redeeming love. So verse one also tells us that there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land, and the scripture isn't clear and on the particular case of why God caused the famine to happen, but it's reasonable to assume based on what we see in other parts of scripture, particularly in Leviticus 26, verse 18 through 20. I encourage you to write that down. You can go back and look at that later. But it seems that God is using this famine as a means to discipline his people. And so this is the backdrop of the book of Ruth. It's in one of the darkest parts of Israel's history, and the people of God are experiencing a famine. They're experiencing God's discipline. And the, the book of Ruth focuses on the, the family of a man named Elimelech. I mean, we've talked about this in the past, if you've been with us, especially last semester as we studied Hosea, that names in the Old Testament carry a lot of weight. Your name is kind of, it's, it's your identity. It tells you who you are. It tells other people who you are. Names have a lot of meaning. Uh, and, and so I want to encourage you just to pay attention to what the names of the characters in the book of Ruth, what their names mean. And we'll start with Elimelech. Elimelech is the dad of the patriarch, and his name means God is king, which is pretty funny considering that it's taking place in the day when there was no king in Israel. So in the period of Judges, when there was no king in Israel, there's a man whose name is God is king. It's very ironic. Also notice where Elimelech is from. He's from Bethlehem. It's not a coincidence that he's from Bethlehem. He's an Ephrathite. He's from Bethlehem. Think about Bethlehem and the weight that that carries throughout the rest of the biblical storyline. Bethlehem is a place where God blesses over and over and over again. It's not a coincidence that he's from Bethlehem. And also note what Bethlehem means. The name Bethlehem means house of bread, house of bread. So again, do you find it ironic that in the city that's named House of Bread, there's a famine? Again, 
not a coincidence. There are no coincidences with a sovereign God. And verse two tells that the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi. So Elimelech is married to this woman and her name is Naomi. Her name means pleasant or her name means sweet. And that name is really important, Naomi and sweetness, because that'll come back up here in just a little bit. And it tells us in verse two that Elimelech and Naomi have two sons, Malon and Kilion, which you can probably guess, or I might take a guess at what their names mean. Their names mean destruction and illness. And so here's teaching point number one. This is a joke, but this is teaching point number one. Don't name your kids illness and destruction. Some of the names we've studied this year, uh, we, named, we, we looked at Hosea and he named his first kid Jezreel, uh, which means it's a, it's a place, it's a reminder of a place of judgment. Uh, the other two were named Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy, and Lo Ami, which means not my people. So we've seen, I mean, like imagine naming your child like COVID-19 and H1N1. I mean, like that's, that's the names that, that, that Malon and Killian have. Like Elimelech and Naomi picked some brutal names for their children, but these names are fitting, Right? Because at the end of verse two, the scripture tells us Elimelech and his family, they leave Bethlehem and they head to Moab. Again, do you see the irony here? You have people living in a city. The city's name is House of Bread, but there is no bread, there's a famine. And they leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab. And the guy who takes his family there is a man whose name means God is king. But he takes his family out of the land where God is king where, where God has promised his people and he takes them to a land full of compromise in search of food. He takes his family out of the land of, that God had given to the people of Israel and he takes them to a land where the people did not worship the God of the Bible. Now, it may not seem like a big deal that, that Elimelech would do this, that he would move them to Moab. But if you knew the story of the Moabites, you'd know that this was, this was not the right move. This was not a good move. And if you don't know the story of the Moabites, you can read about their origin in Genesis 19. Moab uh, was the son of Lot, the son of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. And so from the very beginning, the Moabites are not a people that are honoring to the Lord. They don't get started the right way. And by the time you get to this part of Israel's history, they are still not a people that are a pleasant people to be around. They don't have a pleasant reputation at all. Uh, they're known for being a very sexually perverted people, even throughout history. They're an enemy to Israel when you read through the book of Judges. And even worse, above all of those things, they were people that didn't worship Yahweh. They didn't worship the one true God, the God of Israel. So for all those reasons, God's people didn't belong in Moab. But Elimelech makes this, this tragic choice that many of us make today. Rather than dealing with the, the sinfulness of his own heart, and the spiritual issues that he had in his own life, he ran in search of something that he thought would satisfy the earthly needs, the earthly desires that he had. And the consequences for Elimelech's choice, not only for him personally, but for his family, are very tragic. And so both of these things that you have here, there's a famine in Bethlehem and Elimelech moving his family, both of these are extremely ironic. But God is at work. God is at work in the midst of this. And what we see here in verse three is that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, he died. And Naomi is left with her two sons. So again, ask yourself this question. Why did Elimelech leave Bethlehem and move to Moab? He left so that he wouldn't die. And what happens when Elimelech gets to Moab? He dies. 
Why did Elimelech die? We don't know. How did Elimelech die? Not really sure. Maybe he got hit by a camel. I don't know. There's no telling. The scriptures don't tell us, but what the scriptures do tell us is they, they leave this legacy for us, this legacy that Elimelech is a man who did not trust God to be king in his life. His name means God is king, but the legacy that he left, not only for his own life, but for the life of his sons to come, did not leave a legacy that God was the king of his life. And again, rather than dealing with the spiritual sickness in his own heart, or spiritual sickness in the hearts of his people, he fled from God. And he took his family with him to a land where his family would grow even further from God. And it's a very ironic, tragic ending to his life. But unfortunately, the consequences don't just stop there for Elimelech. His family is not yet done with tragedy. Because Elimelech's sons did something that the Lord told them explicitly not to do. Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering, he's talking about the, the promised land here, to take possession of it, and he clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Verse three, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The Lord made it very, very clear. Do not do this. God knew that if his people intermarried with the Canaanites, people who weren't worshipers of the one true God, then their hearts would be turned to be turned away from the Lord towards these, these other gods. And so he explicitly tells them, do not marry people outside of the faith. Do not marry people outside of the worship of the one true God. And what did they do? Verse four, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. And so these guys, these two brothers, Malan and Killian, they do exactly what God tells them not to do. And I wish I could say that that was only true of the two of them, and that's not true of any of us at all, but I'm afraid that that's not the case. I'm afraid that there are many of us today who have done the exact same thing in terms of our relationships with other people. Fast forwarding about 1,200 years or so, the Apostle Paul writes this to God's people, to us as God's people. He writes a very similar instruction. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Friends, please make no mistake about this. If you are a Christian, if you are part of God's people who've been redeemed by grace through faith in Christ alone, then you are not to be in an intimate relationship, dating or marriage with someone who is not a follower of Christ. God told his people not to. Back in Deuteronomy, the apostle Paul tells us again in 2 Corinthians, do not do this. But there'll be some of you guys who will say, but Hunter, I can win my boyfriend or I can win my girlfriend to Christ. No, you can't. The spirit of God can. The spirit of God can work in someone's heart and only he can change a person's heart. And if he does, then by all means, date them. But as long as they are not a believer, God's word is explicitly clear. Do not have partnership with them. 
Do not have fellowship with them. No Christian is called to what you might call or might hear called missionary dating. We're not called to that. Others might say, but Hunter, I, you know, I really love that person. I really love my boyfriend. I really love my girlfriend. And I'm afraid if I, if I leave this relationship that I'm in now, because the other person isn't a Christian, then I'll never find somebody else. I'll never find another boyfriend. I'll never find another girlfriend. Plus, all my friends are gonna make fun of me for breaking up uh, because Jesus tells me to. But is that not the same choice that Elimelech made? He chose to, rather than, than obeying God, he chose to disobey God. And he pursued worldly comfort, trying to find food instead of allowing God to be king in his life. Elimelech did the same thing. Again, friends, please don't choose temporary satisfaction of disobedience over eternal pleasures that we know await for us at the right hand of King Jesus. And so we could belabor this point and go on and on and on, but ultimately, for both Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, for us, it comes down to a choice. Are we gonna choose obedience or are we gonna choose disobedience? That's my question for all of us today is which, which are you going to choose? And I recognize that that might be a little bit of a gut punch to some of us, especially some of us who, who may be in relationships with people who aren't true followers of Christ. But I want you to know that that comes from a place of love in my heart, and that comes from what we see as God's desire, God's good and God's perfect desire for you as his child. There is always a cost to following Christ. And the question for us is, are we gonna be willing to obey even if it's costly? Because we see the legacy of Elimelech, he wasn't willing. We see that Malon and Kilion weren't either, that they married, intermarried with two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And Ruth, again, her name means friend, which again is a completely fitting name for, for this, this woman. So the scripture says that these, these, this family lived as a family of five for about 10 years, uh, and then grief strikes again. Malon and Kilion dies, and Naomi's left with two Moabite daughter-in-laws. That that's what we see here in, in verse four. They lived there about 10 years in, in verse five too, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left, Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. So these, these women now, Naomi, Orpah, Ruth, no husbands, Naomi, no sons. This family is on the brink of extinction. But again, God is not done with his people. The God of the Bible is a God who redeems and he takes broken, dysfunctional, captive people and he, he makes them beautiful and he makes them whole. And in an act of God's providence, he opens the heavens and causes rain to fall back in Bethlehem. The, the famine has gone away and Naomi hears word in her field in Moab, that the Lord has visited his people and he has blessed his people in verse six. So it says that she then arose with her daughters-in-law and to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So Naomi recognizes that God's discipline has passed. God has once again visited his people. And it's really interesting to note this, that this in, in chapter six is the first time that the name of God is mentioned in the book of Ruth. It's the first time that the name of God is mentioned in the book of Ruth. There's 23 other times where the name of God is mentioned in Ruth, but there's only two times where the writer of Ruth, whether that's Samuel, Solomon, we don't really know who it was, 
that there's only two times where the writer of Ruth actually writes about something that the Lord does. One is right here in Ruth chapter one, verse six. The second is in Ruth chapter four, verse 13. The Lord is doing something in both. He's blessing his people in both of those cases. The other 21 times that the Lord is mentioned comes in the form of conversation between the characters in the book of Ruth. They're talking about speaking uh, uh, about what God has done, about the character of God. But isn't that cool though? At the bookends of Ruth, in Ruth chapter one, minus the, the setting part, and at the very end of Ruth, Ruth chapter four, verse 13, you see the providence of God. This whole book is about the providence. Again, this whole book is about the God of the Bible. It's not just a story about Ruth. This is a story about God. It's about the providence and the redeeming love of God, that God is at work. He's providing for his people and he's bringing about his glorious plan of redemption, not only for Naomi, not only for Ruth, but for all people, for all people. God is bringing about his plan of redemption and that is amazing. And so Naomi decides to return home. She hears that the Lord has blessed Bethlehem once again, so she decides to go home and she tells her daughters-in-law, this is a summary of verse eight and nine, go home, go home and may the Lord bless you. She kisses them and they weep together. I mean, think about what these women have gone through. Over the last 10 years, they've lost a, a husband. Naomi lost her husband. Then she lost both of her sons. These women grieve together side by side. They buried their husbands together. I mean, this is, this is a gut-wrenching kind of moment and the time has come for them to part ways. So they cry together. Naomi says, go home. May the Lord bless you. And they tell Naomi, no, this is verse 10. No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? And then she goes on to say, I don't have any more sons to give. I don't have a womb that can produce sons. I don't even have a husband. I have nothing left to give you. And she says in verse 13, it's exceedingly bitter for me, for you, to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Again, she says, go home. I have nothing left for you. Go home to your families. Go home. I have nothing left to offer you. Verse 14 says that they then again lifted up their voices and wept. So again, we find ourselves here in another decision-making moment. Another decision-making moment. What did these two women, some of them not much older than some of you girls in here today, they had a choice to make. And choice to make to go back home to their families, to pursue husbands, to pursue a family, to pursue a livelihood, or to return with Naomi, to be faithful to her, to love her, to care for her. This is more than just a decision about a husband, more than just a decision about family. This is a decision about God. It's a decision about worshiping either the one true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God of redeeming love, or continuing to worship a, a pagan God, a God that cannot hear, a God that does not love and does not listen. So Orpah makes her choice. For, verse 14 says that Or Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. And so Orpah goes back to her lands and to her gods. But Ruth makes her choice too. It says that Ruth clung to Naomi. I love that phrase, that she clung to Naomi. She, she grabbed a hold of Naomi. In verse 16, she makes a commitment to Naomi, not only to Naomi, but to the God that Naomi worships. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I'll go. And where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people. And notice this, your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so here you see Ruth living up to her name. 
Some of these other people, other characters in the book of Ruth, they haven't lived up to their name. Naomi does. She's a faithful covenant friend to Naomi. And she makes this difficult and extremely costly choice to follow the God of Israel. Remember, Ruth is a Moabite. Moabites don't belong in Israel. Moabites don't know the Lord. She's not a part of God's people. And so she makes a choice here to forsake the gods that she has worshiped growing up, to forsake her family, to forsake all that she knows, and to go and give herself in total devotion to Naomi and to Naomi's God. And I pray that there'll be many of us who are just like Ruth, that we would have faith just like Ruth, that we would forsake all worldly pleasure and all earthly comfort and everything else that this world has to offer. And we would boldly and humbly submit ourselves in humble devotion to the God of the Bible. That we would give everything that we have, that we would give everything that this world has to offer, and we would submit ourselves to God for his glory. And Naomi and Ruth are blessed for their obedience. Ruth in particular. God has a plan for Ruth's life. And we'll study that here in just a second, but Ruth chose this humble devotion to the God of redeeming love, knowing all the costs that were gonna cost her. She was gonna go back and she was gonna be shamed and she was gonna be scorned and she was gonna be a representation of all the things that had gone wrong with Naomi's family. But she chose to come back and to worship the one true God, the God of the Bible, over the comfort of returning to her family and to their gods. So in verse 19, we read that both of them, the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, they they go on until they came to Bethlehem. When they come to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. I'm sure you guys can imagine this. Imagine you have some friends that you live in a small town and they go off for about 10 years and they come back. You know, of course you'd be stirred. You'd be surprised that they were in town. It's been 10 years since they've left and now she's back. And not only is she back, but look how she returns. The women of the town, they don't even hardly recognize her. So we read the second part of verse 19. The women said, is this Naomi? It's like, is that really, is that really you? Naomi, is this, is this really you? Sweetness, goodness, is, it, is, this, is this really you? And she says to them, do not call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitterness. For the Lord Almighty, for, all, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Again, Mara means bitter. She's gone from Naomi to Mara, from sweetness to bitterness. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. Her whole family has been taken away from her. And with that, really all of her rights to own land, her ability to eat and provide for herself. She was too old to remarry. She couldn't have any more sons. She lost everything that she loved. She had gone away and she had returned completely and totally empty. So you can feel this tension that's going on in Naomi's heart. There's a lot of things going on right there. And next to her stands Ruth, Ruth, the the Moabite woman. And now imagine, just have, have you imagine yourself standing there in the place of Ruth. You arrive with Naomi, your mother-in-law, to a land where you're a foreigner, where simply just by the way you look, you stick out a little bit like a sore thumb. And you show up to this courtyard area where there's a bunch of people, and everybody turns and they, they look. Look at Naomi, and they hear what Naomi says, and then they look at you. They look at you, and 
all you can do is just kind of bow your head in shame. So you stick out like a sore thumb. You don't belong there. Can you imagine that feeling? Just, you don't, you don't belong here. Of understanding that there's a, a prejudice against her. Now imagine hearing Naomi have this conversation. The Lord sent me, sent me away full and he has returned and I, and I have returned empty. He's brought me back empty. As you stand there right beside her, she says those words. She says, I have nothing. Again, all you could do is just be to hang your head in shame and just wanna crawl inside of yourself because again, you are a physical representation of all that has gone wrong in Naomi's life over the last 10 or 15 years. You are a symbol of judgment from the Almighty. And not only that, look what the author of Ruth says. Look how he describes her in verse 22. So Naomi returned, talking about returning to, to Bethlehem, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the country of Moab. <laughs> no, no mistake here. The author of Ruth is trying to help us to see that this is not just Ruth. She's not known just as Ruth. She's Ruth the Moabite. She's Ruth the stranger. She's Ruth the foreigner. She's Ruth the symbol of all that has gone wrong in Naomi's life. Can you feel the tension that's going on here? There's a lot of buildup of tension here. And Ruth chapter one ends in verse 22. It says that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And there's a thread of hope there that we'll continue to see as this story unfolds. But this is chapter one. And what a story we have so far. And this story only gets better from here. But I, I don't want us to miss this. And this is the point that I was talking about earlier. I don't want us to miss this. That to some, this story of Ruth might, might be a tale of tragedy, uh, a tale of suffering, but it's not that. This is a picture of God. It's a picture of the gospel. And I don't want us to miss that. I don't want us to miss the, the forest for the trees. I don't want us to focus in so much on this suffering that we miss the God who's present in the midst of this suffering. And so I say that this is a picture of God and you ask, how so? How is this a picture of God? Look with me at Naomi's response. We'll look, verse, uh, look in verses 20 and 21. Naomi has re returned to Bethlehem. And they ask her, is this Naomi? And Naomi refers to God four times in these two verses. Here's what she says. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty, that's the first title she gives, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord, should be all caps in your, in your Bibles, has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord, all caps again, has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So you got four references to God in two verses, two different names or two different titles. And here's where we see the picture of God. The names of God, much like the names of the people in the Old Testament, they tell us about the character of God. Names are a big deal, as we've already seen in Ruth, as we saw in Hosea. And it's no different that that when it's, it's no surprise to us that when Naomi, uh, she's talking about God, that she uses two specific names or two specific titles for God to describe the character of how she understands her God to be. And so the first thing she says is that God is sovereign. She says that God is sovereign. She calls him the almighty, Shaddai. It's not a name as much as it is a, a title. Um, you, you might be familiar with the title Adonai. It's the title of, of Lord, like lower capital L, lowercase r, O, lowercase r, lowercase d. It's a title like master. So she calls him Shaddai. You might recognize the full title El Shaddai. 
uh, or God Almighty, the, the, the title El Shaddai, it, it, it speaks to the omnipotence, the power, the power and the majesty of God. That God is supremely sovereign over all things, which means that he is in control of all things. And that's what Naomi recognizes first, that the Almighty has dealt with her. And Naomi in the book of Ruth makes it very clear that there is not one detail in this book, in this story that happens outside of the sovereignty of God. That every single detail has been ordained by God and Naomi knows it. She doesn't have a shallow, lukewarm faith at all. This is a rock solid, deep conviction that God is in control and that what she's experienced has been, has been sovereignly ordained by God. And I know for, for many of us, when it comes to tragedy and suffering, we, we wonder if God is in control. We wonder if God really is sovereign. Sometimes I hear people say things like, well, God didn't know that this was gonna happen. Or they'll say things like, well, well God took this person too soon. Or this must have caught God by surprise. Or God's doing the best he can. No, friends, that's not true at all. That's not true at all. That's not the picture that we see of the God of the Bible. We don't have a God who's unable to control the circumstances of our lives. He's a God who is sovereign over all things, including our lives. And for us as Christians, the sovereignty of God is a rock that we can stand on. It's a rock that we can build our lives on to know that God is in control, that in times of trouble, we're dealing with a God who's never been caught by surprise, who's never been unaware of the circumstance, who's never been unable to do something about to control the circumstance. He is a God who is sovereign, sovereign over creation, sovereign over the weather, sovereign over illness, sovereign over death, sovereign over cancer, sovereign over the placement of, of our lives, sovereign over the boundaries in which we live, sovereign over the number of days that we live on this earth. He is sovereign over all things. And we can take a great comfort in that. That's why we can take comfort in verses like Romans 8, 28. It's one of those coffee mug verses that you see regularly. But this is because we believe that God is sovereign. That's why we can believe verses like Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If God is not sovereign, then that is not a true verse. If God's not sovereign, that's not a true verse. And we are in big, big trouble because we are serving a God who's unable to do anything much more than we are. And I pray that all of us would also have faith like Naomi, that when suffering and tragedy strikes our lives and when we experience the pain of suffering, that we would have a rock like the sovereignty of God to stand on and that we could join with Naomi and say, the Almighty has dealt with me. Now I recognize that that immediately, this idea that God is sovereign over all things brings up a lot of questions. Brings up a lot of questions in our minds. Last week, uh, we had Alan Taylor come and he shared and uh, many of you guys submitted some really good questions. There were at least four or five that had to deal with the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. If God is sovereign, then why does he allow these kinds of things to happen? And it seems like there's an assumption there's this conception about God that he's either sovereign, that he's powerful enough to stop evil, but not good enough to care, or that he's good enough to care, but not powerful enough to stop it. What do you think Naomi would say to that question? Is God good or is God sovereign? You think she would say that it's an either or thing? I don't think she would. I think she would say that it's a both thing, that God is good and that God is sovereign. Notice the second way that she refers to God. Verse 21, she says, I went away full, but the Lord. 
all caps, Lord, L, capital, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord has brought me back empty. Even in the midst of Naomi's suffering, she affirms that God is good. She, is, she says, it's the Lord, Yahweh, who brought her back. God is the one who brought her back to Jerusalem. She uses there the covenant name of God. It's the name that God gives when he's dealing with his people. God describes himself with this name in Exodus 34, six. And here's what he says about his character. He's the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clears the guilty. He's a covenant-keeping, faithful God. That's the God that Naomi is referring to here. She says he's the God that's visited his people in verse six. He visited his people and blessed them. Chapter four, he's the God who visits Ruth and gives her a blessing of a child. And as we see right here in chapter one, verse 21, this same God who blesses his people with grain, the same God who blesses his people with new life, with life for the baby, is the same God who graciously and wisely brings Naomi back to Bethlehem. Verse 21 is an affirmation that even in Naomi's suffering, that God is good. God is always good, even in suffering. And you say, well, well Hunter, how can you say that? How can you say that? Look what, look what God has ordained for Naomi's life. Look at all the pain, look at all the suffering, look at all the things that happened. How can you say that God is good to Naomi? If God's in control of the situation, why couldn't he fix it? Those are questions that we wrestle with, aren't they? Those are questions that we, we wonder. We look at Naomi in moments like these of suffering in her life, in our lives, and we wonder, is God really sovereign? Is God really in control? And we ask, is God good? God, how is this good? How is this cancer diagnosis good? How is me not getting into a particular school or to a particular program at school or getting a particular job when I graduate? How is that good? How is my relationship falling apart good? How is my parents' divorce? How are those things good? God, are you good? Those are questions we ask, aren't they? Gotta tell you that even I wrestle with those questions sometimes. Even I struggle to wrestle with those sometimes and struggle to see how God is both sovereign and good, especially in the midst of suffering. But that's what this entire book is showing us. This entire book is a testament to the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. And what we find over and over and over as we turn the pages of scripture is that God in his sovereign plans, he ordains suffering. He ordains suffering and tragedy for our good and for his glory that his redemptive purposes might be accomplished. And I wish that I could explain to you the rest of the book of Ruth tonight because all of that would make sense if you could just hear the rest of the story right now, but you gotta wait a couple weeks. Uh, we'll get there soon. But God in his sovereign plan, he ordains suffering and he ordains tragedy for our good, that we might be drawn closer to him and for his glory, that his redemptive plans might be accomplished. But by all accounts, Naomi's word about herself, it's a, true, it's a true word. She has absolutely nothing. But again, all throughout scripture, we see that in these places where people have absolutely nothing, when God's people are left completely empty, that it's then that God leads them somewhere for their good and for his glory. Think about the people of Israel in Egypt. Before they got there, God led Jacob out of famine into the land of Egypt. And that became the, the stage for God's glory and his goodness to be made known to all the nations. Through the suffering of the people of Israel, God made his glory known. 
And it was ultimately for their good. And I love what David Platt says about uh, this moment for Naomi. He says this, and in the moment where Naomi thinks that God is the furthest from her, God is laying the foundation for his greatest demonstration of faithfulness to her. I'll read that again. In the moment where Naomi thinks that God is the furthest away from her, God is laying the foundation for his greatest demonstration of faithfulness to her. Again, the rest of this book comes, comes out of what we see there in verse 20 and 21, that God is sovereign and good. He's a God of redeeming love and he redeems Naomi, he redeems Ruth and because of that, he has redeemed us as well. But friends, please know this. In those moments where you feel like the pain is too much, the suffering is too much, it's unbearable, God is far off and God is distant, please know that God is still in the process of redeeming. God is still redeeming us. He is sanctifying us. For those of us who know him, he is sanctifying us. For those of us who are far, he is drawing us to himself. God is still sovereign, he is still good, and he is still faithful, even in difficult times. And I've experienced that in my own life. I think I've shared with you guys before on a couple of different occasions that I really struggle with anxiety, uh, with a really, really bad anxiety, kind of crippling anxiety for about two years. And I can remember being in, in those anxiety, in, in that season of anxiety, and I wondered, God, are you still there? Are you even real? Are you in control of these things? Are you even good? Do you still love me? And there are days when I, I would hate the anxiety that I have, but I look back on that now, and I'm so thankful for the, that battle that I went through because I can look back at that now and I can see the goodness of God in his hand throughout that entire process. Over the two years that it took me to, to learn how to process those things, I can see what God was doing. I can see his goodness in humbling me I can see his goodness in exposing the sin in my heart. I can see his goodness in dragging that doubt of me and giving me a deeper faith. I can see his goodness in allowing me to walk through that experience so that I might be able to share with others about how good God is and how sovereign God is, even over those difficult situations. I would never, ever trade the, that, that time that I went through because I got to see the goodness of God. And there are many of you who can tell similar stories just like that about suffering, about difficult circumstances, tragedy in your own lives. But there are always gonna be moments where we're gonna doubt the goodness and the sovereignty of God. But I hope that you can see as we continue to study the book of Ruth, that this is a story that's just laden with the sovereignty of God and it's laden with his goodness. And that you can take comfort in the truth that God is both good and sovereign always. And I hope too how you can see uh, how Ruth is a picture of the gospel. I don't wanna spoil the story too much, but I wanna invite you to flip with me to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one, verse five. Um, this is in the genealogy of Jesus. You've probably read Matthew chapter one before and you've probably, uh, if you're like me, you've probably just read this and skipped over this part because it's a lot of names and you don't really know some of the names, but the names are really significant. In Matthew chapter one, verse five, this genealogy starts with Abraham. We'll skip a couple of people and we'll get to verse five. It says, uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. So notice who's included in the genealogy of Jesus. How scandalous is that? That Ruth, the Moabite, is included in the genealogy of Jesus, the savior of the world that she's a, a Moabite woman who gives birth to the grandson 
who would be king over Israel, the king who, or the, the king that would pave the way for Jesus, the true king to come, that God's promise to Abraham would be fulfilled through her line. How gloriously scandalous is it that God would use a famine and he would use Elimelech's sin and moving his family from Moab where his sons would go and sin and disobeying God by intermarrying with Moabite women, one of whom was named Ruth, who after the death of her husband chooses to bear the shame of going back to Bethlehem, a place where she doesn't belong, to go there and, and to be with Naomi so that God might accomplish his redemptive purposes, not only by bringing Ruth into the family of God, but that through Ruth, he would bring all of us, those, who, those of us who have been redeemed by grace through faith in Christ, he would bring all of us in his family. How scandalous is that? That's, that's a glorious story. That's a picture of the gospel, that Ruth, a, a woman who is deserving of condemnation, a woman who's deserving to be, uh, be, to be cursed by God, is brought into the family of God because of his redeeming love. And Ruth's story is a picture of all of our stories, isn't it? People born in a land that's far from God, under captivity to sin, were born deserving of judgment, deserving of God's wrath. But in God's great grace, he's drawn us to himself. He's drawn us to himself. He's redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb. The book of Ruth is a picture of the gospel. And this is not, again, just a story about Ruth marrying a guy named Boaz and them living a life happily ever after. This is a story about the God of the Bible from beginning to end. It's a story about the goodness and the sovereignty of God. That God allows us to experience things in our life. He ordains experiences for us that we might be sanctified, we might be drawn to him and that he might be glorified. This is a wonderful, wonderful story and it only gets better from here. So I encourage you to come back for the next couple of weeks as we continue our walking through this book. Uh, but I, I, wanna, I wanna challenge you here at the very end. So I pray every time that as we study God's word that God's spirit would move our hearts in a particular direction. I think there's probably a good chance that we're one of three people in this story tonight. Maybe we're like Elimelech and we have wandered away into a land of idols. We've wandered away far from God. We've disobeyed God and we've chosen to pursue earthly, fleshly desires over submitting ourselves to Jesus as king. If you're a Limelech, if you're like a Limelech tonight, I, I would just ask you where you're at to ask God to forgive you. Just to ask God to forgive you, to ask him to bring you back to himself, to ask him to forgive you and commit yourself to walking in obedience with him. Or maybe you're like Naomi and you're struggling with the experience that you're going through right now. You're struggling to see the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. You're struggling to see how God is both sovereign over these things and he is both good, that he is near, that he is with you. And if that's you tonight, I would just ask you or I guess beg you to, to go to the Lord and ask him to help you to see that he is good and that he is in control. Ask him to give you a level of trust that you can trust him with the outcomes of your life. Or maybe you're like Ruth. Maybe you're a stranger to God. Maybe you're a stranger to the people of God. Maybe you've never been redeemed by grace through faith in Christ. And if that's you and you recognize, man, I am, I am lost I am broken, I am a sinner, and I need, I need redemption. Would you just, where you're at, ask the Lord to forgive you? Repent of sin, trust Christ for salvation. I would be glad to talk with any of you about any of these things, but if the Spirit of God's moving in your heart in such a way that you need to respond, He is moving in your heart in a way you need to respond. And I wanna encourage you, don't neglect that. 
Be sure that you spend some time with the Lord, repenting, confessing, asking him to help you to obey, asking him to help you to see his glory and to see his goodness. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you are a sovereign God, a God who is glorious, a God who is worthy of praise. We thank you for the story of Ruth, and we, we recognize, Lord, this isn't just a story about Ruth, but this is a story uh, that, that touches a lot of our hearts. We can see some of our own selves in, in the story. Some of us, like Elimelech, we've grown up knowing you, but we have wandered far from you. If there are any in here tonight, I pray that you would draw them back to yourself. Some of us are like Naomi in the sense that we, we struggle sometimes to recognize the goodness and the sovereignty. I pray that you would help us to be like Naomi, rather that we would see that you are good and that you are in control and that we would trust you. But we know that as you deal with us and as we live through this life, the things that you have ordained for us are for our good, that we might be more like Christ and they're for your glory, that your purposes of redemption might come to bear, even in our sin. Lord, some of us are like Ruth. We don't know you at all. And we pray that tonight, Lord, that your spirit would work in our hearts in such a way that we would see your glory and we would see the gospel in the book of Ruth and that we would be drawn to our knees. That we would plead for you to have mercy on us and you would show us grace. We thank you for Christ Jesus who's come and he has set liberty, set at liberty those who have been oppressed. You've come to proclaim freedom for captives. Lord, we are born captives and we need to be redeemed. We thank you that you are a God of redeeming love. Pray that you would bless us as we respond. Christ's name.